What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is Dean Lunt, publisher of Island Port Press, Yarmouth, Maine, founded in 2000, and has since published more than 200 books focused on the culture and heritage of New England. For 2023, the press will reissue several of the novels and collections of poems and ballads by Ruth Moore, who during the mid-20th century achieved local and national success in her documentation of coastal Maine, its villages, and inhabitants. Her second novel, Spoon Handle, published in 1946, was on the New York Times bestseller list and was compared to Sarah Orne Jewett, William Faulkner, and Sinclair Lewis for its evocation of a particular American cultural landscape in transition, indeed at risk. Among other titles to be released this year are her first novel, The Weir, and a new anthology edited by Dean, Voices Off the Ocean, a literary visit to Ruth Moore's Maine. Dean, welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I usually start with questions about the interviewee, who you are, where you came from, how you got here, how you became a publisher. Uh, would you give us a little background of your, your own personal history? Yeah, I grew up on Frenchboro which is a small island about eight miles off Mount Desert Island. My family moved out there in the late 1700s and they've been there ever since. So I'm really seventh, eighth generation island boy, I guess you might say. They're all fishermen. I went to school in a one-room school on the island. It's a K-8 school. By the end of that, seventh grade, I was the only student in the school. So we actually shut the school down for a little while in the wintertime. The Islanders being Mainers, they didn't want to heat it for one student. So I had school at the teacher's kitchen table every day, all winter long. And then by late seventh grade, I moved over to uh, Mount Desert Island and went to Tremont School, which is where my mother grew up because I was a baseball fanatic. I wanted to play baseball and it was time to actually have other kids around. So that's how I got there. And, you know, as far as this goes, you know, that's why this is the seventies growing up. We only had two TV stations. There wasn't a lot of kids around. So I did a lot of reading, you know, a lot of old books, Hardy Boys, all that stuff. So I think that really sort of developed my love of reading and of books, just being alone on an island, eight miles to sea with no phones. We had no phones back then either, so we couldn't call anybody. So that was sort of my early upbringing was uh, on that island. Did you have siblings? Uh, did you have other children on the island that you, you could run in a pack with? Uh, not really during the school year. I'm, I'm the youngest. And my brothers are eight years older than me. Uh, and they had gone away to boarding school back then uh, at 14, so I was young. Uh, early grades, there were four of us, five of us, six of us in the school, uh, various grades. There was only one other, one of my cousins was also in my class in that school through sixth grade. 
So for the first, um, you know, K through six, it was anywhere from five to eight or nine kids in that K-8 school. It was that seventh grade year when most of the families left and it was just me and literally there were no other kids on that island in the wintertime. So my pack was my great aunts and great uncles. You know, I learned to play cribbage and all those old games because that's what they played and spent, had a great time with all that gang. They told stories. You've stepped out of the pages of Ruth Moore. It's as if she invented you in a way. It's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. That's how I grew up. Now, this is the wintertime. Now, of course, in the summertime, there were some summer people and there was a, a summer gang that we that I would hang out with and run with. I played baseball in the mainland. So when you went to the mainland to go to school, did you go back or was that essentially an escape or how? what happened after that? Well, I moved over. So my mother uh, grew up on Mount Desert Island and her her mother, my grandmother, lived in the village of Bernard. So we had land over there. So seventh grade, I moved over. We had a house there. We went to Tremont School, which each grade had 20 kids. So it was still tiny, but it seemed much larger. Uh, and as I mentioned, one thing that really helped me in that case was I was a baseball fanatic. I mean, I loved baseball. Uh, so my dad every summer through Little League and would bring me across that eight miles of ocean to play Little League baseball. So I knew some of those kids from playing uh, sports every summer. Uh, so that helped a bit. And that was a great undertaking by him. I, you know, he had to come in from lobster fishing, cart me in, get me a boat. It was a, probably a 45 minute boat ride in those days to get over there for games and practices. So he committed a lot of time and effort to making sure I was able to do that, which ultimately helped me a lot through uh, junior high and high school because I played high, baseball in high school too and and all that. So uh, that was very helpful. Did you feel pressure to get sucked into the lobstering? Um, so this is the early 80s. Uh, lobster fishing was really terrible. I mean, it was at its probably uh, low point. So there was no money. Um, the island itself, where I grew up, we thought was going to become a summer island. It was, again, I was the only kid in the school at that time. So they come up with all kinds of schemes to bring people out there, uh, housing, the gateway housing and all that. And then they eventually, lobster fishing revived and it came back. Uh, I would think within the family, I think, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, you, you had to break away from 200 years of family history. Mm -hmm. I never really said, I'm going to do this. It's just the way my life went. Um, I do think, and we talk about this with some of my friends now, so you come off those islands and um, some of those coastal period places, I do think there's some expectations with guidance counselors or uh, other people that suggest, that put you in a category. So I do think I had to break through that, through just right. actions and activities, and I had to really be my own advocate to, to go to college. So I, I think I did that. It was great. It goes back to baseball, too. So base, my entire goal was to become a baseball play-by-play -play broadcaster at that time. So that's why I went to Syracuse University, because it was the best broadcasting school in the nation. Uh, and I got in. It was great. When I got there, it was people now like Mike Tirico was in my class. He's 
these uh, leading announcers, I'm reali- I realized these guys are really, really good. <laughs> and I still had a little of a Maine accent and I talked fast and um, all that stuff like Mainers do. So I became a writer. I, I, was, I liked writing anyway, but I quickly shifted to newspaper after about a year, just as a matter of this is what I need to do to actually get a job. <laughs> as a sports writer or as a general reporter? Uh, in college, I was a sports writer. But I made this decision when I graduated that I really love sports. If I worked in it every day, that was going to take some escape away. So I decided to go into news. Did that for 12 years. My dad's mother was a huge influence. She had written an early history of Ireland. She was always pushing me to get an education, you know. Mm-hmm. So she was great. So she she really pushed me. So tell me about the idea, the nascence of um, of Islandport Press. How did how did that come about? Well, that was so I was a reporter for twelve years, and my entire goal was to get to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and then I had a child, and I'm like, hmm, I don't think I want to raise her in the city. And at that time, the Press Herald in Portland was expanding its staff, its business reporting staff. And they were kind of recruited me back. So I came up here to raise my child in Maine and um, work at the Press Herald. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the late 1990s. A couple of years later, I could just sort of see that newspapers were in for a hard time. Somebody was leaving our staff and going to the AP. That person was not going to be replaced. And I had reached a point where I was able to travel to Puerto Rico for a week to write a story or Tennessee for a week to write a story. And I loved it, but you could see that was ending. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about what am I doing next? And I was the first person in my family to ever really have a paycheck. Everybody else worked for themselves. So I think I had that bent too. Like, what am I going to do? Eventually, I want to have my own business and not work for somebody. So those two things sort of came together in the late 1990s. I was covering a story up in Moosehead. I was driving back. And I pulled over at some little rest area on the water, on the lake, and sort of sketched out the business plan for Island Port Press, which was um, basically to what skills do I have? So I love history. You know, I like this, this culture heritage of Maine. I'm a good writer. I have editing skills. Uh, I have a marketing degree as well as a journalism degree. So I put all that together and sort of um, launched it. And that's what I did eventually. So, and that first book was Hauling by Hand. Going back to my dad's mother, my grandmother, she had written an early history of Frenchboro and it made me promise to write a new one and update it. So Hauling by Hand, which is the book I wrote, started out as just keeping a promise to her. And as I began writing it, it became a bigger, bigger project. And we used that book as our first book to learn how to design a book, edit a book, do pictures, all that. So that was really the test case. And that became the first book. And it was released in early 2000. This is like any other venture. Uh, It requires capital. uh, And it requires some things that in small publishing are not always available, like like distribution. How did you rationalize those two things in your mind as you started out? Well, I think I was a little naive on the whole process. I had the publishing company to one side. I was also working as a freelance project manager for Hewlett Packard. I was designing and writing and editing their workstation materials 
for worldwide shows. So that that helped. Uh, we funded the whole thing based on credit cards and cash flow as books sold. So Hauling by Hand had to sell the next one. Um, as far as distribution, that is was, is, remains, and always will be by far the worst part of this business and the most difficult. Um, I was naive in thinking that I would just walk into every independent bookstore and go, hey, I'm an independent press. Surely you want to sell my books. And some did. And some just said, yeah, we'll get them through Ingram. And I'm like, well, who's Ingram? <laughs> and then I had to find, eventually had to find a distributor and all that stuff. So that was the challenge. And that really was, um, I would say, what I didn't do enough due diligence on. Now, maybe it worked out. I just sort of plunged ahead and sold direct. And I walked into all the bookstores and it, it worked out. We kept adding books along the line and they were popular. A lot of people bought them, but I didn't realize the degree to distribution. And eventually I had to get a distributor. So I had a, a similar experience with, with Leeds Island books, which is a small publishing that I run. And I found a distributor back in 1979 out in Texas, Midland, Texas. And he, what he saw in me, I absolutely, no idea. There were a few titles, particularly one, that he somehow figured out were were money. And so he took me on. But at one point, he ran into financial difficulties and he had to go declare bankruptcy. But what he did for me, which was just magnificent, he went to the warehouse before they padlocked it and he pulled all the books out and stuck them in his barn. Uh, <laughs> And that was in 1979. And I just got a report today from the subsequent uh, distributor. And he told me that over the last 12 years, that that book has sold 100,000 copies. And it was all because of this one guy. So I'm really in awe that you've been able to do this. And now you're issuing, what, three, four, five books a year? Oh, 20, 20. 50 books a year. So... The, the one I get, this could be too much in the weeds of book publishing to discuss this. I don't know, but so we did our own distribution, our own sales, and then when I had to take a, a distributor on, if people don't know how this business works, almost all books go through a major distributor, which is a national conglomerate, which then sells to every place else. So I had somebody come to me and I said, "Well, you can't have Maine." So my business strategy was to keep Maine. So I have a warehouse in Maine, and there's a warehouse in Ohio. And I have my own, still have a sales rep in Maine. So we service all of our Maine customers because I felt we know the stores. I knew backlist was critical. Uh, uh, distributing companies only want new lists. So the backlist goes wanting. And the backlist is the only thing that's profitable for a small publisher, really. Right. So we kept the stores. So we have 300 stores in Maine that we service through our own sales rep and our own warehouse which is faster payment, quicker restock. So that's kept us going, having Maine and then letting the 49 states be handled by somebody else. Yeah. One of my measures of my own uh, business acumen is that I chose a business, which may be the stupidest business in the world, because the books are all on consignment in the stores. So you, yes. you, you, you think you've triumphed by seeing the book face out by the cash register in some store, but the next minute it's back to you you're paying a penalty for its return. It might be damaged. 
And, you know, it's not, it's not easy peasy to be in this business, big or small, but yeah. small publishers, it's very, very difficult. And I'm in awe, really, truly respect that you can service 300 stores in this state, not to mention do 20 books a year. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah. Well done. Thanks. So as you, as you point out there, um, I didn't know about returns when I started this business either. So, you know, gift shops don't do returns. So that was good. So two things. I went to a trade show in Rhode Island, which was the New England Booksellers Association trade show. And back in the early 2000s, there was many, many small publishers. I talked to every one of them before I, as I was building this. And what you just said, many of them failed or almost failed by not understanding returns. They would sell the, they would sell the books as tribute. They would get paid. The books would come back and they had to give it back to them but they'd already spent the money. So I held out for distributor for a long time. So I didn't want to do returns. And then when I absolutely had to do returns, one of the things about the distributor was they would process them all from the nation because I wouldn't have the ability to process returns. It's a, it's kind of in the weeds thing, but yes, it's, it's an archaic depression era business model that allows bookstores to return unsold inventory and it comes back to you, like, as you mentioned, damaged everything else. So, so it's interesting, but yeah, it's a it's a challenge. It's really, it's really wiped out a lot of small publishers. This 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 sort of model. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine. Broadcast live on WERU eighty nine point nine FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Dean Lunt, founder of Islandport Press, on the writings of Ruth Moore, whose novels of Maine are classics and until now, mostly out of print and unavailable. Now talk a little bit about that, those 20 books, about your list. Uh, there's some really remarkable books. I've interviewed a couple of your authors already on Conversations with the Pointed Furs. Do you make all the editorial decisions? Yes. So the first year we did one book and the next year we did a couple books and I got to like three or so books. Not then we never sold a hundred thousand copies of a book, but so a couple were pretty popular. Uh, we did a book, one of our early books was called a moose and a lobster walk into a bar, which is by John McDonald who just passed away a few weeks ago. Um, it's a, it was a book of Bert and I type humor. Yeah. Uh, and it was a, it was a huge seller for us. Mm-hmm. So a couple, of, and that fed the next few books. And eventually, you know, we've had a couple of recessions in here. We've had a couple other issues during the 25 years, which has been difficult. And the half the bookstores have closed. But eventually we've now gotten to 20 books, um, mm-hmm. original titles, some backlist books. It's all by gut instinct. We do follow a very sort of, it's going to be Maine or New England. Uh, I couldn't figure out, some of my fellow publishers who do very well, but they would do like, here's a book about New Hampshire poetry. Here's a book of Russian letters. And here's a book about the science fiction. From a marketing standpoint, I couldn't figure out how to make that work. I wanted sort of a similar books that you could do the same channels of marketing, the same channels of reviews. I couldn't, didn't have the staff or the time to find all that stuff for every type of genre. Right. So right. we did that. The other thing we did, which is eventually gets us to Ruth Moore, was very early 
I realized there was tons of great books, great content, great authors with great backstories, which is important, that were out of print. So probably from the second or third year, I started mining the out of print catalog of Maine. We started out with the story of Mountains and Island by Samuel Elliott Morrison was one of our early reprints. Mm -hmm. And what we did was I would transcribe them so they could redo the fonts into modern fonts. And then I'd maybe find pictures that weren't in the original or I'd redo the covers. So it looked like a new book, which would reduce one barrier to buying because you see those old chunky fonts or those old margins, you think old and we redesigned it. So you took away some of those barriers, some of those mental obstacles to actually buying the book. Mm -hmm. So we did that with nonfiction. We did like a book called Nine Mile Bridge, which was a, about a woman who was teaching school in a lumber camp and then was the wife of one of the first main game wardens, still in print, probably sold 10,000 copies. Um, then we moved into kids' books. We found some old kids' books, which was Dalla Vipcar that were out of print. I tried to find books that were very good, that were popular when they came out, that, that held up, because some books just get dated and you can't make them work. And also had a good backstory. Like we could do a, this person did this, therefore you should read her book or his book. Right. So we moved on through that. Are you overwhelmed with manuscripts now? I mean, every person in, in the world has got it with a computer and a kitchen table is a writer. Yeah, we probably get 500. Um, oh my goodness, no. We publish about five. So it's like a one to 2% success rate. So about that, yeah, I had this is another thing. Again, I had no idea. So I started this company, published a few books, never anticipated that people would start. So the first person I hired part-time was simply to help me cipher through all these manuscripts going in. Um, and we do respond to everybody. I sort of kept up with that. It was sort of an early mantra. Where I'm like, I will respond to every author who sends me a book. And now I'm like, oh my God, 500. All right, <laughs> we'll get back to you. <laughs> but we do it. Well, now you're reading on uh, PDFs. You must be blind. <laughs> well, to be fair, to be honest, I should say, we don't, we don't have to read all of them. I mean, some are just not our genre. Some of them are just not what we're looking for, whether it's quality, whether it's topic, whether it's whatever it is. So I would say of those 500, we really get to look at 50 to 75, which we have to read through. Uh, and I have, I have outsourced fiction, uh, new fiction. I have an editor who I work with and she's great, but I'm not a great modern literary fiction editor. So she does all that. It's the toughest genre to sell, but we're committed to doing one or two original fiction books every year because we're, we're the only people doing it in Maine now, really. Mm -hmm. No one else is doing Maine fiction. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do put that off and we do that, um, but that would take more time because that you really have to read the whole book. Whereas nonfiction books, I know the topic. I can tell whether a person has a story or not, and then we, we can go from there. So. Are you at scale or are you, do you see the future going to more titles? I would say unless we find a lot more people to work for us, we're probably there. It's 20 to 24, I think, is where we're going to stop at. But, yeah, I think that's good. Just the size of our warehouse, uh, what we can promote, what we can do, that would be the sweet spot. And some of those, are, again, are these sort of 
these reprints, you know, like I would in that 20 books, I would count a Ruth Moore book in that 20, since it's original, we're doing the whole editing design um, and brand new fiction. One of the other things that folks that may not understand the publishing business is that one of the worst things that can happen to you is a bestseller. <laughs> yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's even more of a problem now. I don't know. It used to be a problem. Now it's a huge problem because it takes so long to print a book because of COVID adjacent issues. Three years ago, to do a print run, a black and white book, which we print often in Illinois, would take me four weeks, four and a half weeks. So if you had a good seller, unexpectedly, you could get the order in and turn it over in five weeks. It now takes 12. So last Christmas, we had a big hit, but it sold out three weeks before Christmas and I couldn't get it back until February. Mm-hmm. But if you make that move to do a lot and it doesn't sell, you have a huge inventory of books that just sit there for years. So it's a real, like you said, it's a real game there. And the best seller is you have to devote so much of your capital to print one book that comes from other places and you have warehouses and you have the returns. It's, it's a, at some point it stops selling and the game is where is it going to stop selling? Cause you can't get stuck with too much inventory. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. <laughs> so typically when I'm looking for a book to take on, it has to be a somewhat of an evergreen book. I don't do trends. Mm. We don't do politics or anything like that. So in my world, a book has to sell for five to 10 years before mm. I can reasonably do it. Now, some sell longer. I'm not always been able to do that. Um, and as far as that inventory goes, again, another publishing story. One thing I, I did wrong was initially our fiction books would come out in hardcover and then we try to transition to paperback, right. which all the giants do. It just didn't work for us. We couldn't make that transition. We got stuck with the hardcover. So we had inventory and then we didn't get that jump. So we don't do hardcover anymore because it was too costly and it was, we just got stuck with them and lost a lot of money. So do you put out uh, ebook editions? Some, yep. Fiction books, certain books we do, not all of our books. We don't do our kids' books and ebooks. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, after iTunes come out and uh, Netflix came out, so iTunes came out and wiped out record stores. And then Netflix came out and wiped out Blockbuster. And then Kindle came out. So the great fear was that Kindle was going to do to books what those guys did. So the challenge for us for a while was to convince stores that that wasn't going to happen. And it never did. So ebooks, which are still sell in certain genres, they sell pretty well, but it did not wipe out the industry like was feared. And that was a, a huge fear there for a while that that would happen within this industry. It didn't happen. So we sell some, you don't make any money at ebooks because they sell for like 30 cents. Libraries buy them for like two cents. So we don't push them too much because there's just no money in it for us. And it requires us to do the same amount of work. I mean, you're still editing a book, designing a book. So we do them and our Jerry Boyle books, which are crime mystery books, they do sell pretty well for ebooks. Mm-hmm. And a couple sell okay. Mm-hmm. But we probably sell most books, 100, 200 copies of an ebook, and that's it. Right, right. Well, let's talk. At last, let's talk about Ruth Moore. I confess I had not read her. 
Uh, and I uh, spent the last week and I read the Weir first, and then I read Spoonhandle, uh, and then I read your other, your other collection of uh, Cold as a Dog and other stories. Can you talk about them in order? The Weir was her first book. Spoonhandle was the second. Can you talk about what they are, how you feel about them, particularly coming from the places that you do, and how she grew between the first and second book? Well, I think to really get going, you have to talk about Ruth. So Ruth grew up on Gotts Island, which is a small village that was dying in the early part of the 1900s off of Mount Desert Island. And she'd been there like me. She'd been on the island. Her family had been on the island for a hundred and some years. So I had to sail by her house every time I went home. And you can see her house from my, the boat I'd be in. So that's how close we were. So she was right next door to the island I grew up on. So I always saw her as a, as a novelist and, and knew about her. And sort of anytime you have somebody from that background who's successful, you're like, you take note because, hey, somebody did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got the publishing, and so Gary Lawless, who owned Blackberry Press and owns Gulf of Maine Books in Brunswick, right. he was a great supporter of, of Maine writers in the 80s, and he was the one who brought back a couple of her books. Um, and then he's done it for a while locally, sort of at his store. So eventually I said, I want to do Ruth Moore. So I went to him, and he was ready to move on. So we took him over a couple of years ago, redesigned them, uh, put some marketing behind them, published books had not been out in a long time. So that's how she got to be there. That's how we came into the Ruth Moore business and it fit with our idea of reprinting great books. So then Ruth grows up on this island and she, like I did, goes to the mainland, goes to Ellsworth High School, graduates from high school, goes off to New York to college. She's going to be a teacher. Uh, doesn't like that. So she goes to New York City, works as an assistant, and then goes to California and she's tremendously homesick in California. And she writes the weir basically while working on a, like an almond farm or something in California. Cause she's so homesick. And then she moves back to New York and starts working for readers digest as an editor. Um, so that came out. And then she, she wrote that book, which is really, I would say broke her in and then spoon handle really is where it exploded. But so the weir, is her writing style. She was an observer. She was a classic Mainer. Uh, she was basically this woman that I told you I played cribbage with because she's basically my great aunt, as far as I can tell. Every characteristic about her, her attitude, her curmudgeonliness is all all my family from that island. And and the weird was basically her writing about where she grew up. Um, and it hit. She wrote in a way that was authentic she was an observer. She didn't write myth, except for in her ballads, which is the whole different thing. But, and I think she wrote in a way that you had to live it. So one of my other favorite authors was Tom Wolfe. So Tom Wolfe would go in and observe and write as an outsider, whether it was Bonfire of the Vanities or those books. She wrote from a point of just living it. So she innately knew this stuff. So her descriptions and her writing were of the, of the detail of living a life that she knew well. And also she wasn't, she didn't overwrite like a lot of those 1940s, 1930s writers. So like we did Marilyn Chase, which is great, but they're long, huge, long sentences and sweeping epics. And some stuff doesn't hold up. Her stuff was straightforward about a place and a time 
that held up over 60 years. So you write it, you can still find that, that space. It still makes sense. And it's so specific that it works. So that book came out and it did okay. She got some good press, but stayed at Reader's Digest and then came out with Spoon Handle, which is probably a much more polished book. She's, she's mining the same ground. I think she's learned a lot about writing. It's a little more commercial, I think, than the weir. A little more epic in scope or, or in the storytelling. And that's what really took off. Um, yeah, I, I sense that difference between the two, reading them back to back. Spoonhandle incorporated all those stylistic qualities that you talk about. And then it, it amplifies the narrative. It's mm-hmm. not mythic, but it's mythic enough because it's people's lives, simple people's lives. And yes. all of the um, all of the emotions, uh, positive and negative, all the all the sins, deadly and otherwise, uh, right. are encompassed in these island communities, in which she can she knows so well, so that when she's, it's not artificial. At least it doesn't seem artificial in, in terms of the the rivalries and the events that occur in Spoonhandle. She does get a love interest going, which is a little different. Uh, in the weir, um, so that it, toward the end of that book, as you're sort of rooting for the for the love interest, yeah. um, the happy ending, um, I can see how that helped the co- the commercial uh, success of the book. But the way you so, describe the style is is right there. It's just so elegant and simple, unpretentious. It's straightforward. She often calls herself a reporter, uh, eyes from the underbrush, and that's what she's doing. But she knows them. You wouldn't call her a nature writer, but her descriptions of the sea and the seaweed and the storms are written by someone who has lived them. What she was able to do is she was unique or rare, I should say, in that she exposed those sins. I mean, these a lot of these people aren't likable. This is not picture postcard. There are there are abusers. There are racists. There are um, alcoholics. There are all that stuff. But unlike some novels now and then, uh, and Gary Lawless often pointed this out, she it was all within context. So she also balanced that out that it wasn't everybody wasn't terrible. So it was in this it was a real live, living, breathing community of good people, bad people, people making tough decisions, people victim of circumstances, people victim of nature. So I think that's also what worked because you, you weren't just sort of. Not a Tarantino movie. You're not just getting blown away by everything. It's a... <laughs> Although there's there is, I wouldn't necessarily call it violence, but there is interpersonal violence in in both those books. There's a oh, lot, lot of malice uh, in in some of the things that are described. Oh, absolutely! Every book has malice, and that's the the gossipy, the infighting, the the bitterness, all that stuff, which she knows from living on those islands of small towns, are there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was sort of, when she came back in the 80s, she was brought back as sort of one of these, uh, the real main. It was this re- sort of real main movement of the 80s, which Carolyn Shute and Sandy Fippen and all those people started writing about non-postcard views of Maine. Um, and, and so her stuff came back originally with that because she was considered one of the early um, writers of that, the real main, she called it. Mm-hmm. Which again, all the sins are there, but also there's some redemption there. So it's all good. Right. So the key part about Spoonhandle was its success as a as a bestseller, 
but also it was made into a movie. So she got what was a huge sum of money at the time. She got $50,000 for the rights to that book from 20th Century Fox to make the movie Deepwater, which on the good side, it allowed her to quit her job in New York City, move to Maine, build a house, and spend the rest of her life doing nothing but writing mm-hmm. based on that movie. The, the bad part was she hated the movie and she quit, broke the contract, didn't want to write the screenplay because she didn't like their treatment of her characters. And she got blacklisted at that point uh, from Hollywood because of her curmudgeonness of Maine. And uh, sometimes I have little arguments with her, her biggest fans because I, you could take that in two ways that she was standing up for her principles and she didn't want this, these characters ruined. Um, but her success would have been much bigger had she stayed and had the rest of her books made into movies and right. worked through that. So I think she cut off that avenue of, of success because of principles. And she just wanted to be left alone in Maine and write. Toward the end, she didn't, didn't really publicize her books. Her books sort of trailed off at the end because she just stopped doing interviews and she stopped doing press. So mm-hmm. when I was doing Voices Off the Ocean, you saw a lot of New York Times stories and stories about Spoon Handle and the Weir and all that. And then all of a sudden you get this space where she doesn't exist until the 80s because there's almost no press, no interviews, no feature stories on her because she just wanted to be in her house on Mount Island, Maine and write. And that was her goal. So it's a fascinating character. Have you ever run into a writer who's uh, been satisfied with the, the, the treatment, screenplay, and actual Never. movie? <laughs> I mean, it's just a nightmare. You, 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 you dream of it, and then it happens, and it basically corrupts everything that you ever thought that you had invested, invested I mean, in. The I might love uh, The Shining, but Stephen King hates it, and he, yeah. he wanted to redo it. He hates it so much. I thought Nicholson was great. Um, the same way with the readers, you know, again, I mentioned Tom Wolf a few minutes ago. So the bonfire of the vanity is one of my, I was a reporter. That's one of my favorite books of all time. Um, but as a fan of him, you know, I hated the movie. <laughs> Just, yeah. Yeah. So I think if you're a fan of the book or the author, you hate the movie and the people who didn't read the book tended to like that movie. So it's, I think, I think people who don't know movies don't realize if you take a book, how few words are in a screenplay. So you're oh, taking yeah. these, 100, 120,000 word books and reducing them so much that you have to get rid of plot lines for the movie. Like, I'm a huge fan of the Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. You know, the book is great, but to make the movie, they had to eliminate like 80% of the of the side stuff because they couldn't get into two hours. It's just, it's an impossible task. It's impossible. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast live on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Dean Lunt, founder of Islandport Press, on the writings of Ruth Moore, whose novels of Maine are classics and until now, mostly out of print and unavailable. So you mentioned Tom Wolfe. There's the other Tom Wolfe who, uh, you know, look homeward angel uh, uh-huh. in that same school as, as Faulkner and say Sinclair Lewis. 
whose specialty was, and I think Ruth Moore has been compared to those people. Yes. I, I think genuinely um, and right, rightly so, to have essentially been able to capture a county or to capture a place that is a normal, apparently a normal place, and right. then uh, then reveal all of its entrails uh, and show the all of the way that the, the the body parts move and deal with life. It's a lost art. You don't see it much anymore, primarily because the movies have kind of replaced that that approach. She, um, she was able, like those uh, great writers. To, to find the universal in the, in the, in the specific and the minutia. So she built her stories from details like brewing coffee and then that's universal. And then she'd find these universal truths by the very recognizable actions of people, real people in real towns to do that. So I think that was her trick, like all of them, was to find those specific examples and then build universal truths out of them, right. which is what she did through observation and through detail. So if you were going to characterize in the context of this weird phrase that we use, the spirit of Maine, what would be the nouns or the adjectives that you would distill out of her her work that would define, help define that spirit? Well, the, the, there's the usual. There's The one I use most for her is just authentic. You know, she her writing's authentic. The people are authentic. Um, her stories are authentic. You know, you can quibble about how well vernacular holds up over the years, which can make these books tough at times, trying to read through some of the, the dialogue. They're gritty. They're they're real people. I think she has found a sense of place. I think one thing she does well, which is part of Maine, is to write about and make you understand how important the location is, the sense of place, the rhythms of the sea, the, and she knows it so well because she lived it. So you can feel that. And and everybody in these books, they have their characters, but they are, they are controlled in many ways by the location of which they live. So they are at the mercy of, of nature, the elements, uh, their upbringing, everything else. I think that's one thing that she did. Um, And the sense of me, I think there's a, this is, you can get corny in here too, you know, and these people are fighting the elements, they're fighting change. Um, and one thing that holds up in these books is she's writing about summer people coming to her island in 1940s and changing it and people selling the stores, which still rings true. So the stories she's telling back then are the stories we're still telling about the effect of summer money. I mean, there, there are wealthy people coming to this island, which is still happening. Right. So she was able to tap into that which is again why these stories hold up because the the basic tales, you know, they have we have phones now and and uh, Amazon, but the the kernel of these things are still are still true and still work. I got caught up in them completely. I thought I thought she handled dialect very well at first. I thought it was going to be corny. It was not corny. It it reads pretty pretty well. I thought you didn't get you weren't disturbed by it as you read the conversations. And these these themes that you're talking about about the impact of the weather, the climate, and the impact of external migration into the state, immigration into the state of goods, people, and ideas. You know, if you're talking about facing change, sociological and political change, I mean, these books are right up to the moment, in their way. Every one of her books deals with 
how regular people are dealing with change of some sort. Mm -hmm. um, everyone is a town that uh, second growth, you know, this business has played out. What do you do to replace it? And uh, the weir, you know, fishing the uh, is dying out. How do you replace it? The people are leaving. So these universal stories of change, how do normal people who can't affect change deal with change is commonplace throughout every one of these novels. And again, these changes remain today. Again, like you say, nature, climate change, whatever. She didn't say climate change, but the climate is everywhere in these books. She was also very forward. I mean, she had strong female characters too. Uh, there was always a protagonist who's a female in this book. Some they're the leading characters, some they're not. They're all very real. So, uh, did she have a personal life when she came back to Maine? Did she have companionship? Uh, yeah, it was another another female writer uh, that mm -hmm. she met, lived with, and she also their her companion also wrote some books. Was a town selectman, so they lived. They built the house together, uh, and they live together in Tremont. So her her niece still owns the house that they built. Well, maybe we should try now. Uh, we have we have some time remaining. Let's let's see if we can hear her voice. Um, can you channel her through some of the pieces that you've collected and anthologized in Voices Off the Ocean? Which by the way is coming out this this summer, is it not? Yes, it's coming out this year. It's really a collection of there are excerpts from every one of her books in it. An introduction, yeah. and then I'm writing along forward, just sort of how I found her, our, our like sort of paths, and and why I think she's uh, strong and important still. Yeah. Um, I picked out so the Weir, of course, is the first one. Which do you like better, by the way, the Weir or Spoon Handle? I actually liked the Spoon Handle because I thought it was more more complete. It's, it's more polished. You can tell yeah. it's a second novel. Yeah, all the themes were more or less the same, although there were new ones in Spoon Handle, but, uh, and the only thing that I thought I worried about, I haven't read the third one, was that she was going, she went a little romantic and sentimental at the end, and that, that could have been dangerous, but it was perfect for the way that the book came out. There was a kind of vindication of the good, yep. uh, kind of, you know, uh, internecine war between good and evil and between people from away and people who were indigenative, and so I, I liked it best as a complete work. Yeah. Rest assured, she doesn't go down the ro ro romance novel on any of these rest of these books. Uh, mm -hmm. Her favorite, I think I read, was Speak to the Winds, mm -hmm. um, which she felt captured what she was trying to do the best. So so the Weir, the opening of the Weir um, is, is a very simple scene, which just sets it up. It, this is her characters. And then I was going to read something of Speak to the Winds, which is really a description of nature, which she combines these things very well. Um, the other thing I want to point out, you mentioned earlier, which I think is spot on with everybody I've talked to, which I encourage anybody who picks up these books to listen to you on this, because I've had young people read these books too, is the first 20, 30 pages, they really noticed trying to read the dialogue. And then they, every one of them told me by the time they get through those 20, 30 pages, it just melted away. And they did not notice it, and it did not bother them again. Right. So even though there are a few words that I know dialect and these uh, coastlings as well as anybody, there's a few things I can't figure out what she's saying, but but it doesn't really affect the book. Right. Also, luckily, turn of the century, turn of the last century, people tried to really write in a lot more harsh main accent, and the books today are unreadable, whereas hers 
it's not. She's much, much more subtle in many ways. And again, it stands up. So I will try to do the weir, the opening of the weir. And this is um, how it starts out. It's just two people getting up in the morning and it shows her detail. Hardy Turner slid out of bed quietly, not to awaken his wife. But as he put the quilts back around her shoulders, Josie moved a little and said, You going, Hardy? Guess I better. Well, light the lamp then. No use dressing in the dark. I'm wide awake. She could hear him moving around, and presently she leaned over, fumbled for a match on the stand by the bed, and lit the small kerosene lamp. Hardy was standing by the window, peering out, his eyes close to the glass. The window faced west, and the soft muslin curtains were bowed out against the screen as if glued there. As he turned away, a gust baffled around the corner of the house and sent them flapping wildly out into the room. The window shade bulged, cracked loudly against the woodwork. Then the wind sucked away, drawing the curtain straining against the screen again. My land! Josie put her feet out of bed, reached for a house dress to put over her nightgown. Tis blowing, ain't it? What time is it, Hardy? It's half past one. Wind's been breezing on hard since 12. You been awake all that time? Off and on. No need for you to get up, Josie. I'll make you some coffee and fry some eggs. It'll be cold down hanging onto them smiling. I'll drink some milk. Josie snorted. You won't drink no milk. She put on her shoes over her bare feet. There'll be some coals left in the stove, that good fire we had last night. You go down and poke him over. Hardy knew there were no coals left in the stove, and he would have preferred to drink his milk and leave the house without disturbing anybody. He'd have to wait for breakfast now, he thought, poking the cold ashes down through the stove grate with a hooker. And with this wind breezing on and piling up on the tide in front of him, he wouldn't have much time to spare. He poured kerosene lavishly on the kindling to hurry up the fire. There, Josie hurried in, jerking her head in the direction of the comfortable roar going up the chimney. Now it won't take me a minute. I think you'd better call Leonard, she said, breaking an egg into the coffee pot to settle the grounds. The way it's coming on to blow, you'll need him to help you hold the dory. Leonard, said Hardly mildly, he just got to bed. Well, I'll just call him then. Christ, Josie, I can't wait round for him to get squared round. You know he was going to the movies. You wait, Hardy. If you're going to be a fool enough to traipse down there in the middle of the night and drop them nets, you ain't going alone. She stopped and waited. But as Hardy turned silently to his eggs, she went out and he heard her heavy steps going up the back stairs to Leonard's room. So that's the opening of the book. And I think she um, she sets up a great description of the wind sucking curtains and the sort of dynamic between Hardy and Josie and kerosene and kindling is there's a lot of details on here that sets up that seed well, which is exactly what she did. Now, Dean, Dean, I, I looked at the same paragraph and really interesting that you chose it. I, I'd like to read the, the next paragraph, which I thought just adds a little bit to it, which is yep. the weather looked bad. Inky clouds raced overhead, but in the West, a single star showed for an instant before it was snuffed out. Maybe Josie was right. Maybe the wind was just breezing up with the flood tide and would go down again toward morning. On the other hand, it was that time of year, and it might mean a bad southeast storm. Hardy wasn't sure. If only a man had a way of knowing. Oh, 
That line killed me. If only a man had a way of knowing. Here is this taciturn fellow. He's yep. been looking at that water, that wind, that landscape for years, his entire life. Mm-hmm. And he can read it in a way that most people will never be able to read it. But he's sitting there in his kind of taciturn interior monologue. If only a man had a way of knowing. I just love, I love yeah. it. That's great. Yeah. I, think, I think you can, you know that. And then um, I was, I was laughing my grandfather. So my grandfather was an old fisherman, great old fisherman. And he was basically, he could go by dead reckoning. He just knew the sense of the land. He didn't need anything. And then my dad was okay, but he needed a compass and timing. And my brothers, you know, we have radar and everything else. So nobody can do what he did. He just, and that's what her books come across. She, he just had this sense of the entire landscape he was in. You go by a point, you could smell the wind off the huckleberry, whatever. He knew where he was and you could see the swirls in the water. And I think some of that comes through in her book too, just how these people sort of interacted and knew it instinctively because they've been there for generations. Well, in, that part, in those paragraphs as well is a lifetime relationship. They're not talking much, but they know each other absolutely inside and out. And even in it, even though it seems very normal, you could sense that there's tension there. There is right. some there is some tension already revealed in that relationship. And that tension between husband and wife and man and woman goes often through the books uh, in, in other instances. Well, no one no one's going to say a curse word to each other in that scene. But, you know, you can tell that that woman has basically done what she wanted. He doesn't want Leonard to go, but fine. But she's waking him up and he's getting his coffee. And so, you can, yeah, you can tell that relationship is uh, is what it is. It's a real relationship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, through things like starting a fire and getting eggs and waking somebody up to help her. That's all that happens. She's getting him breakfast and wants somebody to go with him. That's the whole scene. And she writes so well that you really have a pretty good sense of their personalities in their relationship. I don't know what I read, 500 words or something. Right. You kind of know those people already, you know, you know what, what their dynamic is. So the other small piece here was from Speak to the Winds, um, which is, this is no dialogue in this. This is just description uh, and her, her sense of place. And she's describing the island. And um, again, this, I think I've read, this is her favorite book. Its shores came down in blocks and tiers of tumbled granite, shelving off gradually underwater so that around three sides of the island thrust out wicked snouts of rock on which the sea loitered with intent, which is a great line, even in calm weather. From tide mark, 10 acres off black ledges made off to the east and south, some underwater, some just awash at different times of tide. Over them, the sea was always in motion. No matter how quiet the day or how still the spruces baked in the summer sun, a slow, cool, sleepy sound hung over the island everywhere. A sound, it seemed, not so much of water as of air. Perhaps on some summer day, an early visitor to the coast seeing the swirl of lazy green around the ledges, the rockweed lifting, and falling like a field of grass, named the place, the pasture. Though no one could say what pastured there outside of crabs and cunners, which is a type of fish, and south-flying seabirds. In winter, the pasture was white water for weeks at a time. Big rollers lifted up green from across the gulf and smashed in on the headland, 
shattering the granite, sometimes shifting great boulders and changing the face of the shore. Sheets of spray roared up 20, 40, 50 feet high, drove into freeze and white rime on the spruces, which on the eastern shore were stunted like trees at timberline. This pond was always full. It caught the wash of rain from the hill behind it, and besides, it was spring-fed. From the high, dry lichen ledges, no one would suspect that the island was a watery place, but deep within it flowed never-failing streams, surfacing here at the pond and trickling down through crevices into the sea in a summer, a slow, steady drip, dampening the rocks above the tide line. In winter, great waterfalls of yellow ice. The swamp flowered all summer, no matter how dry the season. Above it, the granite crisped as lichens in the sun, baked as fiercely dry as if the heat struck outward from furnace fires within. But the growth around the pond stayed brilliant, electric green. Alders grew thick as a man's thigh, and some of the old swamp birches were three feet through at the base. Tall trees in the hill kept away the wind, so that air hung hot and still, full of jungle-rich smells of mud and moss and lush sunny leaves. Squirrel lived in that swamp, and deer, and mink, and beaver, and muskrat. Hermit thrushes sang there all spring long. The trees were full of white flash and flutter, and the four or five clear notes repeated a thousand times of white-throated sparrows. Ducks gathered in the pond at fall dusk. It might be brimful of them, floating side by side. To these inhabitants, at any time of year, the swamp offered shelter, either of shade or of snow. So and it goes on. I mean, she's really describing, you know, uh, rhythms and, and scenes and everything else in that in that scene. To me, that's the spirit of Maine right there. It embodies that landscape, embodies all the values and all the uh, all the the potential and all of the implication of the landscape in which we live. Dean Lunt, publisher of Islandport Press. Thank you so much for introducing us to the works of Ruth Moore. I hope everyone will go out and buy these new editions and that Ruth has, again, yet another revival. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. My guest today has been Dean Lunt, publisher of Islandport Press. To discover the books of Ruth Moore, profiler of Maine coastal culture, go to islandportpress.com or visit your local independent bookstore. My guest next time will be Martha Wright, author, editor, and granddaughter of E.B. White. We will discuss a new publication of White's letters, his classic children's books, his essays, and keen observations on human nature and life in Maine. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.